Good morning. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, if you turn there in your Bibles with me. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And we're going to talk this morning about providence. And when I realized that's what the text was about, I almost called Caleb and tagged him in to preach. Because there's some very hard things in this text that challenge our view of who God is. And if understood rightly, lead us to worship. And understood wrongly, lead us to fear from to, to run and, and have a fearful view of, of who our Creator is. So I want to give you a little bit of background uh, before we dive in to this text. A lot of what I'm saying comes from R.C. Sproul and, and Jonathan Edwards, or two resources that are very helpful for me this week. Now, the, the southern tribe of, of Israel called Judah, they've followed the footsteps of the nations. They've gone away from their covenant with God and his truth. And so Isaiah starts in chapter 1 by saying this, Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Talking, talking about Israel. They don't know me. They've become a sinful nature or nation. Children who deal corruptly. You see, they've given themselves over to pagan worship, even sacrificing their own children to idols. And so he calls them again and again and again to repentance. And when they refuse, he brings the nation of Babylon who defeats Judah, takes them into captivity. They're defeated. They're hopeless. Jerusalem's been burned. Their temple has been ransacked. God then speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah and tells them, He's going to raise up a redeemer for them. Someone who's going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, which is where we get our word Messiah from. To set them free. Send them home. And this person will rebuild their cities. He'll rebuild their temple, a place of worship. And they're going, great, who's this Messiah? This is the Messiah. Yeah, he's going to be Cyrus, the pagan Persian king. 150 years after Isaiah writes this. Of course, that's exactly what happened. In chapter 45, then we see their heart after he's exposed to them his purposes and his providence. And he says that Israel, their people, they're like clay who says to its potter, its maker, what are you doing? They say to God, you're you're doing it all wrong. How can you save us with a Persian and set your spirit upon him? That's not what we want. And what they're really saying is, God, whose side are you really on? And God says to them in our text, I'm on the side of righteousness. When life brings about actions that you disapprove of, Do you find comfort in providence and who your God is? Or do you find that your heart is very much like the clay here who says, God, whose side are you really on? I'm your people. I love you. Why are these things happening to me? 
Well, let's just read our text. Isaiah 45, verses 7, down to around 12. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I am the Lord. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness. Now that's talking about Cyrus. I've stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city, set my exiles free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray for our time. Oh God, we thank you that you are, you are a very big and glorious being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You are overflowing with these things. And by your nature, you are sovereign over all things, oh God. And that means, like you say here, you're sovereign over the goodness and the calamity. Yet you have intent to bring righteousness. Father, I know there are people in our congregation that are suffering. I know there are people in our congregation that are wrestling with you and asking, oh God, why? Lord, and I just pray that you would would give them a display of your greatness in such a way that in their suffering they would run towards you and not away from you. They would love your providence, not fear it. And know and trust that they serve a God in heaven who brings rightness and light out of the worst of darkness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was a young Christian, um, I got in a conversation with a man named Amid. Very bright, young Persian. His father was a Muslim. His mother was Christian. And he got me in a corner. (laughs) He got me in what you might call a theological headlock that I couldn't get out of. (laughs) See, he said, Rusty, why do you believe what you believe? Tell me about your God. And I was so zealous, and I said, oh man, my God is awesome. He's saved me out of hell and chaos. He has transformed me and he protects me. And he stopped me right there and he said, what does he protect you from? Christians suffer. Christians die of disease. Christians lose their jobs. And he had me. 
I had no understanding of providence. I just said, well, I don't know, but he's great. (laughs) Isaiah 45, to a people who have experienced amazing heights of blessing and suffered the deepest defeats from other nations, God says, I will make well-being and create calamity. Why? And then he tells them, let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. He's saying, my purposes in all things are to bring righteousness, redemption, and everything that I do. Now, they wanted to argue with God. They wanted to pass judgment on God for his plans and his purposes. Now, my friends, that is the age that we live in. That when we talk about who God is, immediately that's the stance that's taken in our culture. The culture in much of the church has said, how could God allow these things to happen? He could not allow so much evil and good and be good. The problem then is he must not know everything that will happen in the future. So we reduce God. He doesn't know, or maybe he doesn't control things. He's not sovereign. There. I brought him down to my level. You see, the sovereign God of the Bible has been put in exile in many ways. Everything now is attributed to a very different trinity. Bad luck, karma, and mother nature. That's the trinity of our culture. The invisible hand of God ordering all things of the Scripture for His glory and our good has been chopped off. Now, what do I mean by providence? Well, the Scripture means God's provision for His people, for your life. I do not control my destiny. It's not my world. It's not your world. It's our Father's world. And the point is that He looks after human affairs. It is his fatherly care of his creatures that the word providence means. God is sovereign over all of his creation, even over the domain of evil. He is the Lord of death and life. He rules over all the effects of the fall, like pain, disease, and bad weather. That is the God of the Bible. Chance, karma, mother nature, they're not in the Bible. A father who works all things and produces righteousness and goodness is. Now, if the God of the Scripture is exiled from our lives and problems because he scares us, then what you are left with is a very small God that you will not want to worship. A universe governed by chance and by chaos. And no hope and no purpose in your suffering. Like one theologian I heard, he said, well, when you're suffering, I can tell you, God's in heaven crying for you. That didn't do me any good. I want to know he's got purpose in it. Okay, Rusty, well, how can God be good And yet he says he brings, in this text, calamity and blessings. Well, that's what we're going to dive into. There's two things we want to see, just two points. First, point one, a declaration of sovereignty and providence. 
His declaration of sovereignty and providence. If you look in your Bibles with me at verse 7. Verse 7. Notice what he says. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So there's some parallelism. I form light. You see that? I make well-being. So those are referring to the same thing, right? God brings light and he brings well-being into our world and into our lives. He's the giver of all good things. He brings the rain on the believer and the non-believer. He is the one who blesses our world. But he, he doesn't stop there. A lot of times our churches stop there, but he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. He's not just sovereign over light, he's sovereign over darkness. He creates darkness, he creates calamity, and then he closes by saying, I'm the Lord who does all these things. Now this is not the only place he says that. Let me read you Isaiah 10.5. This is what he says in Isaiah. Assyria is the rod of my anger. The staff in their hand is my fury. In other words, I use Assyria for my purposes. Habakkuk 1.5-8. This is what he says there. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and nasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth. Now listen, remember the context. He's talking about Babylon, which has destroyed Jerusalem, and now Cyrus, the Persian king, coming to destroy Babylon. And God says, this king, verse 1, his right hand, his hand of power, is in my hand. I've got it. He is an instrument of my will. Now, how can God be sovereign over calamity and darkness? and not be guilty of my sin. In other words, how can Scripture say that God is king and sovereign over all things, and yet when evil strikes my life, I have no right to say, God, you are the source of this sin and evil. I want to read you what our confession of faith says. Westminster, this is what they say. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet, so is thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the person nor is the freedom of the person taken away but that freedom is established. Okay, let me explain it. It's what we call concurrence, okay? That means God's providence working through humanity and nature, never coercing man to sin nor committing sin himself, sovereignly ordaining everything that will happen, yet he does it in such a way that does not violate my freedom. Now, I think this is the greatest mystery in Scripture of our faith. But it's not a contradiction. It's a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. You say, what what in the world are you talking about? How can you say that God is sovereign and man is free? That's a contradiction, isn't it? 
Rusty, don't you know the law of contradictions, non-contradictions? Here's what that says. A can't be both A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Did you get that? A cannot be both A and non-A in the same time in the same relationship. So, I can't be father and son to the same person. That's a contradiction of relationship. But I can be father to one person and son to another. You see, that's not a contradiction. So it is a contradiction to say God is sovereign over all things and we are free, isn't it? Isn't that a contradiction? No. Here's why. We can say God is sovereign and man is free. That's what the scripture says. But we can't say God is sovereign and man is autonomous. Absolutely free. That is the contradiction. Because if man has absolute freedom, then God is not sovereign and he is not God. He's not in control of all things. Those two are mutually exclusive. God's absolute sovereignty cannot coexist with man's absolute freedom. So the freedom man has is real. We are responsible moral agents. But we don't have absolute freedom. It's not autonomy. Now we know this, right? You understand this in some ways. You're not free to jump to the moon, are you? You say, I'm free. Yeah, you have no absolute freedom. You're not free to walk on water. There are lots of things that limit our freedom. And one of them is God's sovereignty. You can say it like this. The power of God is always the first cause in everything. But our free will is the second cause. And God acts in such a way that he is still sovereign and we still maintain real freedom, though it's not absolute freedom. I hope I didn't just lose you in the weeds. (laughs) That's the best I can explain it. But, But there's a different angle we need to look at it. Why? The why angle. Well, look at verse 8 with me in your Bibles. Notice what God says. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So that is directly connected to God claiming to be sovereign over darkness and calamity. And now he's given us his intentions. God's intentions in his providence are always good. Even though man's intentions is often, are often twisted and not good. And it's exactly what Joseph says to his brothers who tried to kill him when he was in slavery in Genesis 50. Listen. As for you, God, or my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The cardinal point of providence is this. God is for us. Even in the midst of calamity and darkness and trials, God is for His people. He is always on the side of righteousness. 
And his intent in everything that happens is to bring about righteousness. So I, I can't say why something terrible happens to my life. I don't know. But I know that God is sovereign over all things and he has purpose in it. And he promises that he is going to work righteousness and goodness out of the curse in this world of brokenness and sin. And that gives me hope. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian author, was wrestling with these very things. And he wrote a short story called The Snowstorm. And he says... A wealthy businessman took a sledge to travel back to his house. His sled gets caught in a terrible blizzard where they fear for losing their lives and freezing to death on the Russian tundra. All night they travel through the cold, fatigued, frostbitten. They despair of life. The passengers are deeply struggling, but never the driver. His name is Ignashka. The whole time he continues to sing, jolt the horses and tells the people he will take them to their city in safety. In the dark, the passengers never actually see Ignashka. They only hear his voice, but ultimately all their trust is in him. Finally, they wake up and they have unexpectedly arrived. And Tolstoy describes it like this. As the sound of our bells there came out from the door a big, red-faced, red-haired driver holding a glass of vodka in his hand. I don't think he's saying God's a big vodka drinker. I don't think that's what he's saying. Maybe it's a deeper meaning. And shouting something to us. Ignashka turned to me and asked my permission to stop here. For the first time, I saw his face, and he said to me, We've brought you safe. After all, Tolstoy is saying, life so often is like being on an out-of-control sled where we feel cold, isolated, abandoned, facing lots of calamity. But the truth is, though God's hand is invisible in this life, He is taking us somewhere. He is accomplishing righteousness and goodness. His will through the calamity and the blessings, through the darkness and the light. Now, the question is, how are we going to respond to that God of the Bible? And there's two responses that we see. Here's point two, deciding how to respond. Verses 9 to 10, if you look there in your Bibles with me. Notice the first response. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot amongst the earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Now that word woe means a cry of lament. Over one who would argue, sit in judgment, and refuse to accept God's prophetic message about what he's going to do with King Cyrus that he's going to be their deliverer. Now, he illustrates their heart in several ways. He says, first, does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? 
or your work has no handles. Notice this. God's the the great potter. We are his clay. He is making something. That's the point. He's accomplishing something. But the pot says who doesn't trust him, there are no handles. (laughs) Where are the handles? This is not how it should be. I'm, I'm supposed to be made with handles. And he continues to illustrate the absurdity of man judging God in verse 10. Right? When, when a child says to an unborn mother, why are you doing it like that? Or to the father, this is not how this should go. What are you making? You see, God's point is, it is wrong to complain and pour out our troubles to God. Is that what he's saying? Is God saying here that when I suffer, I should not come to him? No, not at all. He can confuse complaining about God and complaining to God. What God is saying here is, it is wrong for the clay to complain about the potter. But then he goes into what's right. Look in your Bibles, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hand? Notice those words. Ask me things to come. My friends, God is not a cruel dictator. And he says, in fact, he commands his people, ask me. He doesn't just give us permission. He commands us, come to him with our troubles. His children, come sit on my lap and ask me why. Ask me, pour out your heart to me. But then he goes on, but will you command me concerning the works of my hand? He draws a difference between commanding him, sitting in judgment of God and the works of his hand, and coming children as the clay, as his children, pouring out our suffering and saying, oh God, why? And he said, do that. In June 26, 1995, it was the greatest work of providence in my life. I was teaching water skiing at YMCA Camp Cosby. I was not a believer. And one weekend, there were six of us there, counselors, and we had the weekend off. And so as we're all going up the hill to get in the car and go to the mall, my friend Michael leans over to me and he says, Hey, Rusty, let's go to a bar first. And let's put those other four Christians, let's put the four Christians in a different car, and we'll meet up with them later. We put all four of them, Chris, Amelia, Ginger, Robin, into a car, and they got hit by a train following us, and they all lost their lives that day. Now, that was an awful tragedy. It left many families crying to heaven. Why? And several of those families says, I will not worship a God who sovereignly permits this type of action. But in the midst of that tragedy and that suffering, God plucked me from the pits of hell that I was going to and opened my eyes to my need of His saving grace. And not just me, He radically changed 
so many through an awful tragedy. Now, my friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. Human suffering meets divine providence. And how do we respond to a God who says that he is sovereign over all things and he works it for righteousness, though the guilt of sin does not rest upon him? Three things we're going to close with. First, he commands you to come to him with your questions and your suffering. But you must come to him as clay, looking to the potter for answers. The clay is called to complain to God. You are called to complain and pour out your heart and your questions. But never to sit in judgment of who he is. Making ourselves God in him our clay. God loves when hurting Christians come to him with our burdens because they are coming in humility. They're coming in confidence in God rather than confidence in their flesh. And faith that through Christ they have access to the Almighty. Of course, this is the very thing Christ did, isn't it? Just before the cross, he asked God to take this cup from him. He poured out his heart to God. Why? Yet he submitted to the will and the wisdom of God. And of course, we're saved through that. Second, you need to understand that God is a master potter. And we are his clay. And even in the midst of tragedy and pain and all the effects of the curse and the fall upon your life and upon mine, our Father is in heaven and He has good intentions to bring righteousness and goodness from evil and wickedness. Third and last, and we'll finish here. The potter has entered the suffering of his clay. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush His Son. In God's providence, He placed all of the believer's sin upon His own Son. And through the actions of sinful men, the wrath of God crushed the thing that He loved most. His intention was to bring about righteousness and goodness to the world. Because in His death and in His resurrection, our salvation was accomplished. But also, the Savior will come again. And all the effects of the curse will be judged and destroyed. God's intention to destroy the work of evil and sin will finally and forever be accomplished. So, Sin and evil will not win the day. His providence will. And the work of Christ will. Please pray with me. God, you would not be God if you did not say you're sovereign over all things. And I thank you that you're sovereign over the fall. Because if you weren't, there'd be no purpose in it. We could never say good's going to come from it. There would just be chaos and calamity. But God, I thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, so often what the fall and what sin and what Satan mean for evil, you're bigger and you're working for good. 
Lord, that is not an easy message for those who are suffering right now. But God, I pray that those in our congregation who are suffering, Lord, they would turn to you and they would find a Father in heaven who loves and commands his children to come sit in his lap and pour out their questions and their pain. Lord, and I pray that you would comfort them with all the Second Corinthians 1 comfort of a Savior. A Savior who's been in the exact same place saying, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. But not my will, but yours be done. Lord, and through that, what good came to the world? Oh God, oh Lord, give us grace to believe and to trust you in times of light and in times of darkness. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.